Please join me in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and open our hearts to hear your truth. I pray for you to help me as I preach. I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So Advent, as I mentioned, is the start of the Christian calendar. So I could say to you technically, Happy New Year, because today is the first day of the church's calendar, uh, slightly different than the secular calendar. But our pattern has been to um, embrace the lectionary readings from the season of Advent to usually about Pentecost, because the lectionary readings line up so well with what the church season is trying to do. Obviously, you've noticed changes. We have an Advent wreath. The color has gone uh, to the blue. Um, There are a number of changes in how we respond. And the readings today from the lectionary point us to the coming of Christ. That's what the word Advent means. In Latin, it means coming. And it's speaking of both his second coming when he will return and his first coming, which already happened 2,000 years ago. So Advent is actually not a time of counting down how long you have to get your Christmas shopping done to be ready for the party. It's actually a penitential season to reflect and ask, am I ready for Christ's return? And I'll tell you the trick to being ready for his second coming. If you want to be ready for Christ's second coming, live in the new life that has been made available by his first coming. If you are doing that, when he returns, it will be nothing but joy for you. It will be total excitement. In fact, you'll be eager for him to come. You'll be saying, come, Lord Jesus, I want your kingdom here fully now, not just later at some point. Come now, I'm ready for you. This this is available to everyone now. The kingdom of God has been made available for us. And as a church, our mission is extending grace, discipling generations. So discipleship is showing people how to live into this new life that Jesus has made possible with his first coming. Now, before I can dig into that, I have to address what not to do before I can talk about what to do. You might have noticed that both of the texts that were prescribed today talk about sleepiness and staying awake. In the Matthew 24 text, Jesus is saying, if you knew, if you knew what time the robber was going to come and break into your house, you would have been awake and ready for him. And likewise, Paul says, don't be sleepy, but stay awake. So there's this consistent theme in here about being ready. Paul is talking to Christians in Rome, and Jesus is talking at the very end of three years of public ministry to his disciples and the crowds that were following him. Why do you think it is that they have to tell the faithful group following them that they have to stay awake? Why is this caution necessary? It's because it's a real risk that we could be sleepy. We could drift away from readiness. We can neglect discipleship. We can neglect the faith that we've been given, this great gift. God's kingdom is here present, but it is so easily ignored. It is so easy to ignore it. It won't jump out at you and say, here I am. Here's the kingdom. Follow me. Get get plugged in. But the ways of the world, the patterns, the cares, the concerns, they do. They are loud. They are vying for your attention. They are fighting all the time for you to do what everybody else is doing. So at one point, Jesus told a parable of four soils. And he said that the wheat grows up, but the cares and occupations of this life are like weeds that grow up and choke out its life. And he's speaking of our situation. 
the cares of life distract and consume us. So let me ask you a question, and I'm actually going to invite you to do something. I want you to take a pen, and I want you to get your bulletin or the palm of your hand or, or something, and I'm going to ask you two questions, and I actually want you to write down what your answer is. It can be one word, or if you don't have a pen, you can just remember it, but I want you to actually have an answer to this. Since Paul and Jesus are both cautioning people that are seeking God's way to be wary of sleepiness, there's a real risk here. I want you to ask this question of yourself. What in my life is competing with faith? I'll let you think about it for a second. What in my life is competing with faith? Now, if I had to guess, it comes to you fairly quickly. Usually, we can recognize the tension because there are things that you feel like you want to be doing and you don't do them, and there's a reason why. And if I find that when I get quiet and ask that kind of a question, I almost immediately know what it is. It doesn't seem to take very long to know what is the conflict, where is the challenge, what is pulling me away from the things of God. And my second question which, which I find takes me a little bit longer to answer, is what is encouraging your faith? So what is pulling you away from faith and what is encouraging your faith? I want you to reflect on those two questions a little bit. Write something down. It can just be one word on the bulletin. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But just write it down and, and you can be reflecting on that. Transitions are a natural time for a wake-up call. It's one of the reasons I like the change of the seasons. I like Advent because we reset some things. A transition is a wake-up call. It's an opportunity to do some new things. We're, we're implementing the new season. We're implementing a new prayer book, and that's an opportunity for us. You'll notice going forward that the service always has a summary of the law right at the beginning. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, everything that came before Jesus is summarized in those two things. So Romans 13, which is the text I'm going to focus in on today, not so much the Matthew one. Um, Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says that. In the text, he's listing out for the, his audience some of the commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment, they are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So instead of thinking about not stealing from someone, if you spend your time thinking about loving them, how could I care for them? How could I love them? You naturally won't steal from them. So it's an invitation to a way of life. And he's saying this summarizes everything that's been taught. So he tells us how to do it and then why. The way to do it, how, is through love. Love is the fulfillment of the commandment. Develop love in your life for people and you won't commit these sins. Why? Well, he tells us why. He says in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Today, you are one day closer to Christ's return and your own death than you were yesterday. The same will be true tomorrow and the next day. Every day, you're drawing closer to this these two important things. One is specific to you when your time on earth ends. One is general to all of us, the day when Christ returns. Those are both getting closer by one day each time. We're not caught on some hamster wheel of cyclical history. 
History is moving towards a termination point, and it is Christ's return and the perfect establishment throughout the universe of his kingdom. We are one day closer to that. We are moving forward. So that's why to live this way. Paul here is writing to Christians in Rome, but this text has ministered to spiritual seekers um, for many centuries. In fact, I bet some of you know a little bit of the story of the famous Augustine of Hippo, Saint Augustine, as he's been dubbed now, um, who was a, a bishop in northern Africa. He um, was ministering around the, the turn of the fourth century. Um, he's probably the most influential Christian thinker in the Western world. Um, he was a brilliant mind, a uh, prolific writer, and thought deeply about the gospel and the things of God and published a lot. And it really influenced how we understand the message of the gospel. In his book called The Confessions of, Saint, uh, the Confessions of Augustine, he describes how this text led him to become a Christian. You see, he, he grew up in a very um, uh, sordid way. He had a really strong sexual desire. He wanted to live in the city. He had multiple concubines, he called them. Um, his mother, Monica, who was a faithful woman, was praying and praying and praying for him. And she just hated his lifestyle. She knew it was destructive. And she even at one point arranged a marriage and he broke up with his, his girlfriend and was engaged to this other person and then just couldn't go through with it, broke off the engagement and took another woman. With one of these women, they had a child. Um, he was just lost. And his idol was physical pleasure. And he was also seeking um, fulfillment through religion, but he was pulled into a kind of Gnostic cult called Manichaeism that existed back then. It set up um, light versus darkness, good versus evil, maybe a little bit like the Star Wars theology of like there's a force that can be used for good or evil. And this teaching was really popular back then. It's no longer in the world because when Islam entered onto the scene, it wiped Manichaeism out, but um, he was a big proponent of that. And then a man named Ambrose, a bishop in Milan, met him and discipled him, told him about Jesus, told the truth to him, and started to share the gospel. And Augustine was beginning to be opened up to the potential of converting to Christianity. And he had this experience he writes about. He says he was, he was in his study, he had the, there was a Bible there, and he heard children. He could hear the voices of children playing. And they were, it sounded like they were playing a game, like where they were dancing around and singing back and forth to each other. And they kept saying, um, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And he thought, I don't know any children's rhyme or game that says take up and read. And he looked out his window and there were no children out there playing. So he determined it was God telling him to take up the Bible and read whatever verse he landed on which, by the way, is a terrible method of Bible study. I do not condone it, but the Lord will condescend sometimes to our, our improper methods, and he used it. And do you know what St. Augustine read? He went to Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He read that, gave his life to Christ, got baptized, began to be discipled, eventually um, became celibate, decided he, he just can't be married, he can't have women in his life. He became a priest and then later a bishop and then became a great scholar. And, and we have his writings with us today. And they are so influential. 
Romans 13 did that. And what it says in here is put on the Lord Jesus Christ, like you would put on clothing. It's calling us to live like Christ, to actually become like him. Now, this sermon series I'm calling Habits of Readiness, and if you think about that picture there of a, of a foot on the blocks, a starting block on a track to, to run a race, there's a ton of work that gets a person to that point. Think about some of the habits of readiness a runner would take in, into their life. They would have a strict dietary regimen. They would do um, different types of exercise, maybe sit-ups, push-ups, as well as running. They would do track practice. They wear different clothing. They would have an identity shift. I am a runner, they would say. I'm not. They, they're a runner. I'm not a runner. But you can see how there's all these habits that would go into getting a person ready to be in an actual race like that. And by putting on Jesus, we are living in the new life he's made available. When he came, he changed things for us. He gave an access to his kingdom that was not there before. He's empowered us and expects us to become like him, to live differently. His great commission, which you all know, I mean, discipling generations, the word discipling, we pick that up from the great commission. Jesus, his last commandment to his people, you all know it, I suspect, was go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, Dallas Willard, who you know is a, is a huge influence in my life, wrote a book called The Great Omission, and he gave that book that title because while Jesus and Paul thought it was actually possible for us to become like Jesus, the church seems to have neglect any habits of readiness to become like Christ. So we've omitted the part of the great commission that says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. The church in general in the West has no plan to teach people how to become like Jesus. So he calls it the great omission of the great commission. We've missed the plan for Christ-likeness. Now, I'm proud to say that our team has been working on this for a number of years. So we have a pathway of discipleship, of worship, belong, serve, make disciples. We have, in particular, the rooted portion of the belonging thing, which teaches you about prayer, silence, solitude, fasting, a number of these disciplines of the Christian life. There's actually a plan in place for us to move towards Christ-likeness in our life. But Jesus and Paul both thought that it was possible. That's why Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, a question for you, do you think it's possible for you to actually do the things that Jesus did? Do you think it's possible for you to become like the Sermon on the Mount that he taught? Do you think it's possible for you to get freedom from nagging habitual sins in your life? The Bible assumes it is. Jesus and Paul assumed it was. And Dallas Willard came to the conclusion it was, but only after he was convicted. See, he had this, this experience with his neighbor. He felt cut to the heart about it. He lived in a place where his next-door neighbors were loud, biker, drug-using, drug-selling people. And they were having a really rough group of people coming around the house all the time, all hours of the night, buying and selling drugs, doing all sorts of stuff. They were using heroin in the front yard. And Dallas said he walked out in his yard, and he looked over at that. And in his heart of hearts, he said, I wish they would just overdose and die so the earth could be rid of them. And he realized, that's not at all like what Jesus taught. <laughs> he was a Christian by then. He, knew, he was a Christian. 
But he realized he had no plan in place to become loving of those that were, to him, unlovable. And he was judging them. He was wishing death instead of serving them. And he remembered Jesus' teaching, how Jesus said, even the wicked love the wicked. People like their own kind of people. That's normal in the world. But for you, followers of Jesus, you've got to be like our Lord. How did the Lord love people? There was not one of us in here who would call ourselves a Christian who could raise their hand and say, I'm a Christian because I was worthy of it, and Jesus chose me because of my good merit. Not one of us. It was while we were still his enemies that Christ died for us. It was to make the unlovely lovable. He loved us before we were worthy, and then he makes us worthy. And so Dallas realized, I've got to figure out how to love my neighbors. And it was through that that he realized he needed a plan. And so he learned how to make changes in his life and actually started to become loving. While he couldn't immediately love his neighbor, he could pray for them every day. You could do the same. If there's something in your life you want to see changed, there are things you could do in that direction, even if you right now can't do the thing you want to do. You could start, you could set an alarm on your clock and say a prayer for your drug-dealing neighbor. Seriously, you could do that. You might not be able to love your neighbor right now, but you could pray for them every day. That would begin to change. Now, there's another problem in the Western church, and that is that we've been so heavily that we are saved by grace, that we are afraid of any kind of effort on our part. And there's a quote in the Great Omission book that I really like. It's worth learning. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. If you think that you can earn your salvation, you're wrong. Ephesians 2 is really clear. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not a work of yourselves. It is a work of God so that no one may boast. Like I said, no one can boast and say, I'm a Christian because I'm so good, I deserved it. It is a work of grace. You don't earn it. But just because you can't earn it doesn't mean you shouldn't put in effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. In fact, this book is full of commands for us to do stuff. They don't save us but they help us put on Christ. That's what the great omission was all about. It was about coming up with a plan for this. Now, verse 13 says, put on Jesus, put on the Lord Jesus. And verse 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The flesh is the Bible's term for sinful desire. Obviously, your physical body has needs, but needs and desires are different. Make provision for your body's needs. Make no provision for its desires. And I'm talking about the desires that are contrary to what God's will says. We've got to figure out how to do that. And there's a way. There's actually a way to do this. Now, I want you to come back to the thing you wrote on the bulletin. Or whatever you, when I asked you, what is competing with faith in your life? I want you to think of that thing. And I'm going to share with you in closing what Dallas Willard calls the golden triangle. There are three things that need to be present in your life if you want to put on Christ. And if any one of them is missing, it won't happen. You will continue to go to church or do whatever you do every week, and you will stay the same for the next 10 years. But if you actually want breakthrough in a place where your life is not how you know it should be, then the golden triangle will do it. The first side of the triangle is your life, the situation in your life right now that you just wrote down, whatever the struggle is, whatever the tension is. And while... Willard doesn't use Romans. I'm going to use Romans to support these three sides of the triangle. I'm jumping back to Romans 5. The Apostle Paul says this. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
and hope does not put us to shame. It is the struggle in your life that is actually the playing field for the game, if you will, of life transformation. It's not like I've got to get rid of this struggle so then I can be about the things of God. The kingdom of God is present right there in whatever that struggle is. Right there is where the work has to be done. And he's saying, count it, count on the sufferings as a useful and redemptive thing in your life. Consider it pure joy, James says. Rejoice in your sufferings, Paul says. Um, Dallas Willard says, be patient, have patient endurance in your trials. So you, you know that life is hard, but God is good. So just expect you're going to have some kind of hardship, some kind of tension. That's where the work is going to be done. The second side of the triangle over here is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in your life. When Christ ascended to heaven, he sent, he sent the Spirit of God down to be in and with his people, to be the power for this transformation. So again, I'll, I'll use Romans because this book lays this out so well, this letter. Romans 8 talks about life in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says some great things in here. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. St. Augustine actually found peace. It wasn't like all that stuff was satisfying him. He was just having a continual desire for more and was not being satisfied. When he changed and set his mind on the things of the Spirit, he experienced something he didn't think was even possible. And so we've got something going on in your life that is, a, is the, the struggle, the suffering. We've got the power of God present to bring transformation and saying, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit for the power. And then there's a third part, which is the bottom of the triangle, which are the spiritual exercises. We don't like the word spiritual disciplines because nobody likes the word discipline, but it's the spiritual exercises. So there is no one standard list of what these are, but this is where Romans 13, 14 is saying, make no provision for the flesh. In other words, you could make a plan to not gratify the desires. So some of the classic spiritual exercises would be things like solitude, pulling yourself away from others so that the, 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 the gravitational pull into the hurriedness of this life isn't right there immediately present. If you back away for a bit, you get clarity of space. So solitude matched with silence. Stop talking. Stop talking. And be present with the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't start out doing this for a week straight. Just like a runner, you've got to build the muscles up. So do an hour of solitude. Do a half a day retreat. Do an overnight somewhere. Do three days. You can grow up to time alone with the Lord. And what you'll find is you actually start to really desire it. You start to realize, oh, this went by too fast. In the rooted course, when we do the prayer experience, we do three hours of prayer. It's guided, so it's not like I'm just sitting for three hours. But there's, there's a, uh, something we're working through in there. People always say, oh, it's over already? Because it's become productive time. It's become life-giving for them. Solitude, silence, Bible, prayer, fasting. Fasting's been one. Pretty much, if you read a biography of a, of a Christian person who had an influence in this world, enough that a biography was written about them that you could find, pretty much they all have in their life solitude, silence, fasting, prayer, Bible. But I want you to think of spiritual exercises broader than that. I mentioned you could set an alarm on your watch or your clock and pray, say a prayer at a certain time for your neighbor every day. You could do things like that. You could choose to have solitude from 
the technology. You could have all, you create things that will help you get the space you need to be attentive to this triangle. So whatever's going on in your life, if there's something that does not look like Christ, and the Holy Spirit is saying, well, I want you to work on this one now. By the way, you can't try and tackle all of it at once. It, it'll, it'll crush you with the weight of your brokenness. But whatever the Lord brings up, this thing will bubble up, and you, okay, Lord, is that what you want me to work on now? Okay, help me come up with the spiritual exercises I need to have the habits of readiness. And then he'll show you. And then you start to practice those things. It's through the triangle of all three, the suffering that you're experiencing, the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the exercises, the disciplines you put in your life. If you want to put on Christ, that's how to do it. And I'm telling you, if you want to be ready for his second coming, living in the new life he's made available in his first coming is the way. And so I want to invite you this Advent, maybe over these next four weeks, practice that triangle and see what the Lord will do with it. And let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for the call to discipleship, even though it's hard. Lord, I'm also grateful that you accept us right where we are and you love us so much that you invite us to become like you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to everyone in this room. Come now, breathe your breath of life into our hearts. Show us what we need to do to become the people you desire us to be. For I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.